Well, hello. Well, hello. We haven't said, well, hello for a long time, so I feel like we should. Oh, yeah, re-up on the well, hello. Available for pre-order at all good bookstores. Oh, yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> That's our book coming out in October, in case you don't yeah. know. Well, in case don't. you haven't already been bombarded by our marketing. Just the way that you graciously insert, that is a joy to watch. Um, grace, gracious insertion, the Lee Sales story. Um, now... A few pods ago, I think I outlined the panic dream that I had um, in advance of interviewing Rachel Cusk. Yes, and how did it go? <laughs> Has this happy event occurred? And can I watch it anywhere or hear it? Uh, I think in the way of the Sydney Writers' Festival, um, it will surface as a podcast At sometime. Some so when okay. that happens, Keep I will absolutely posted. alert you to it. Because, Great. look, the uh, the short version is it went fine it was, was fine. Was she scary or? She was adorable. Oh, okay. So it was, it was by, um, it was remote. So she was in London and um, had just finished moving house for the week. So I'm like, oh, great. So I'm going to get her kind of absolutely flustered and annoyed <laughs> and in that state that anyone is in when they move house, which is just like, ah, I don't want one more thing to happen. Um, anyway, and I was uh, in the... City Recital Hall in Angel Place with 1,200 other people. Oh, God. So your end had like a live audience and she was, Uh, oh, God. Correct. So, I mean, sort of define stressful. (laughs) So um, I was full of jitters beforehand and partly because, you know, when you have to interview someone that you really admire, it makes it about 50% harder because part part of it is this selfish desire not to embarrass yourself in front of someone that you are completely obsessed with the trick i think with that mm. as we might have discussed before is to set aside your own human instinct to make the other person feel impressed by yes. you and that yep. you actually know their work or whatever yep i also um i consulted the great Ghana by email oh. <laughs> i said uh, what do you think like i'm freaking out i know she's a big fan of cusks and she very wisely said not too many jokes crabby <laughs> <laughs> And she was spot on. I'm like, yes. Because my when I got her email address and emailed her um, in advance of this discussion, my first instinct was tell her the whole story of the panic dream that I had that oh ends God. up with me weeing in a jar on a shuttle bus. And Did I'm like, you? no, I didn't. Okay. No, I didn't, Lee. I didn't tell any jokes or many jokes and I did Just not tell the story. Just natural about, personality. I did. I really st- I stomped it way down. <laughs> And it was the right thing to do. (laughs) But anyway, um, she was incredibly friendly and responsive. But one of the issues was I wanted to ask her about all of her books and and particularly I wanted to ask her about the works of memoir that she wrote, which I've talked to you a little bit about before. Um, So there's one called A Life's Work, which is her account of – giving birth, you know, and, and having a baby. And it was hugely controversial because lots of people um, thought that she was, you know, because she was frankly talking about bits where she's like, this is shit, I hate it, this is no fun at all, I feel like my identity is blowing apart, you know, the baby wasn't a very good sleeper and, you know, all of that. And uh, so people were like, oh, my God, shut up, you know, you, yeah, she got a real serve over it. I found it just such a gripping book. I thought it was also like ferociously warm book, I thought, but lots of people thought it was very cold. I, so so, so brave to, to venture onto that Super topic brave, right? Because you can't really, I think, you can't have honest conversations about things like that because not only are you judged by other people, you're judged by your future children when they read it. Sure, so you have to be yeah. careful what you say. Yeah, because that kid is now like 21. And I said, right. oh, has she read the book? And she said, I don't know. Oh, my God. Wow. Anyway, um, so and then the other 
work of memoir that she wrote was called Aftermath, and it's an account of her divorce oh, from, yeah, from her one. husband. Yeah. And that got a fresh round of wapas because, you know, it's pretty full on. Um, yeah. Anyway, so she, at the end of those two works of memoir, was struggling with the fact that people just hated her or, like, were prepared to just absolutely rip strips off her. And she felt very kind of bruised, I think. She'd been very honest and then just got an absolute pile on. And But what I didn't quite understand was she'd written about six novels before that mm. and then she had these two memoirs and she said by the end of that she was um she was sick of fiction and she said I feel like fiction's just a fraud I feel like the idea of getting inventing Jack and Jill and getting them to do things together is just like this pathetic massive lie it's embarrassing and so she went to memoir but then she found that so bruising yeah, that right. she, after the end of that she thought well, what can I actually write I don't right. know what I can write and so that's when she wrote the trilogy right. which is this weird it's sort of, well, various people have credited her with reinventing fiction, you know, which is probably overegging it a bit, but, like, her central character is almost invisible, right? Like, you don't even find out her name until halfway through the book. Mm. And her the structure of the books is her overhearing or having conversations with people in a way that is not very revelatory about uh, her own life. So no, it's like way, short stories almost. Yeah, yeah, or parables, you know, yeah. and she's such an elegant writer that... There's almost like a, she writes like a philosopher really more than mm. a novelist. So she was, so I hadn't really realised really to what extent her determination to weed herself out of the narrative while still having the conversations that she felt she wanted to have about identity and about the dreadful things that people do to each other. Now she's got this sort of ghostly quasi-narrator or central character um, having those conversations or just taking on board the observations of people that she meets in this yeah. sort of wandering lifestyle. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it made it really clear what she was trying to do. And I oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware just how much her personal sense of being bruised had kind of led her to come up with this new style where she had removed herself entirely and yet not given in to this what she thought was, you know, a boring kind of fiction um, approach of just inventing people. Yeah, and- it's it's a really interesting approach. I'm reading Kudos at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have finished the chapter which was about she's on a plane and she's talking to a businessman whose dog yeah. has died. <sighs> and it's, I mean, being restricted by that it's a conversation with a stranger, I mean, it's an interesting device because obviously you can't, it, I think it's written in first person, isn't it? I can't remember. Um, or not. Well, it's it's kind of like quotes without quote marks. So um, it, it is in the first person, but the, the combina- it, there isn't that sort of narrative voice, you know. And then you know, I got off the plane. No, and it's it's kind of. But you can only so you can only get the version of events that the person is telling correct. you, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. you can't get and that the guy who's telling the story about the dog is only going to tell you things from his perspective yep. he's not going to tell a stranger like his you know secret innermost thoughts so but nonetheless the story of um and this guy's backstory you feel like you get a very richly painted picture right but it's um, realistic because you're i mean i feel like the writer is being honest about okay i'm not giving you a guarantee that this is exactly what happened i'm being honest about the fact that people are subjective and that this guy who i don't know um is 
giving me his version of what happened with the dog mm. and maybe his wife would have a completely different idea. Yeah. And, and to the extent that you sometimes get both sides of a story when somebody that the narrator meets is, you know, talking about their marriage breakdown or whatever, you get both sides of the story told by one person, you know, and my wife is like this and, yeah. you know, and I'm like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's really interesting. I just was um, – I'm preparing to read – is it called Second Place? Is that mm, the new one? Yeah, mm. I just haven't. I've pre-ordered it, but it's not going to land on my Kindle until the end of May. Right. So when I was um, reading, slightly over-reading in, in preparation for this interview, um, I read the new book, which is a, like, it's an. I thought, well, here we are, you're back at the novel again because there's characters that you've made up and, you know, um, away we go. But what she told me, which I didn't know, really um, before we talked, which is a bit embarrassing because I should have really known this, but it's actually the story is based, you know, it's about this um, writer who lives on the sort of salt marshes of Norfolk. Yeah. Spoiler, where Rachel Cusk has lived with her painter husband for the last, you know, however many years. Um, Also, let's put up a link to her house because it's the greatest house ever, Um, mental note. Um, So the story is that this writer who lives on this marsh invites a painter whose work she's seen and has found profoundly moving to come and stay at the second place on their property. It's like another mm. house and to treat it as his Oh, that's retreat. what second place refers to. Yeah. I thought it meant like first place, second place. Well, exactly, but right. it, I think it has both meanings. Oh, it's a kind okay. of an elegant title. Um, and then this painter arrives, but he brings this young, beautiful woman with him and the writer is sort of somehow, she's been hoping that he would paint her or he would somehow interpret her to herself and help her identify who she is. Like it's all about identity and the limits of the self and stuff, which I think Rachel Cusk's writing is sort of in the end all about. So I thought, oh, well, here we are. You've invented these characters. No, she's adapted the book from a story that she read about this woman. Um, I actually can't remember her name now, but she was a um, kind of like a artistic philanthropist and kind of, you know, um, one of these people who invites people to their artists to their house and, you know, helps fund them and so on. And she had D.H. Lawrence come and stay with her for, I don't know, a period of time. Um, and so Rachel Cusk has actually modelled it exclu- like explicitly on this woman and the artist that comes to live with her. So... Her argument is that it's not really fiction. She is actually writing about something that actually happened and she is not kind of offering the world a new story. She's just revisiting one that has always existed that hardly anyone knew about. Yeah, which is a good, you know, like obviously that's a great device for, you know, fiction and imagining, you know, what might have actually happened and and, um, so forth. Was You know the divorce one, Aftermath? Yeah. Is that the one that – was that actually – Build at the time as memoir. Is that the one where the nanny can't, the back half of it, there's a nanny living in the house? Or am I thinking of a different book? Uh, God, I'm confused now too. Um, She's got like a, I reckon maybe it's a different book. No, the nanny, um, doesn't the nanny, I can't remember if it's Outline or Aftermath. Isn't that ridiculous? There's, um, a, there's a book where it sort of seems really autobiographical and then there's a sort of twist in the final third. Actually, that- no, you're right. I think it is Aftermath, sorry. I'm just mixed up. Um Yes, that's the one, I think. Okay. You, you have read that one, I think. Yeah, I have definitely yeah. read it, but I just, 
I thought at the time that it was based on her what happened to her but that it was novelised. I didn't think she billed it as a memoir, but I must be wrong about that. I think it was generally understood to be a memoir. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so. But then there's my... Oh, look, somebody... It does somebody, have a handbreaky turn in the last Somebody third, tweet me if you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Oh, we're about you can to help me figure out corrected. what I'm actually <laughs> thinking about. I just remember thinking there's a sort of twist, something to do with a, like, live-in nanny or that's something right, like yeah, that. And then it, and then it the felt like of, it yeah. wasn't memoiry at some point. But anyway. Because then it goes to the... Um, yeah, because it goes to the... Um, it changes perspective, right? That's right. There's a drastic change of perspective. Yeah. And then suddenly you're like, who's telling this story now? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. So it can't have been total memoir, but I guess the first half's memoir. Anyway. It's pretty specific it anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> it's she's certainly got an absolute earful about it. So Somebody I, called her a brittle little princess or something, oh, like in a review. Like oh, there's, yeah. God. Sorry. Um, so I just read a book and it is the first book in memory that I stayed up late into the night to finish because I could not bear to stop reading uh, it. Okay. Wow. You're bearing the lead here. Why didn't we talk about Heart, this book first? Heartsick by Jesse Stevens. Okay. Um, it's nonfiction. It's, uh, oh, my God, it was just unputdownable. It's basically a book about heartbreak and the sort of anatomy of heartbreak and how it unfolds and um, it has three people who what okay. she does is a bit like that Lisa Tadeo book yep. about women's sex lives. She follows three people who go back in meticulous detail and recount a relationship that has broken their heart from sort of start to finish. Wow. Um, there's a woman called Anna who is cheating on her husband with a man that she's known a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so she's story number one. Story number two is a guy called Patrick who's a sort of, um, I think he's like an engineer kind of computery type job. Uh, and he has a relationship with a woman that he works with and then she breaks up with him. And then there's a woman called Claire who goes to live in London and then she has a relationship with a woman who accompanies her back to live in Australia and then the woman dumps Claire. Um, And the thing that's really interesting is you know from the start because it's set up that it's a non-fiction book, Mm. it's it's narrative non-fiction, incredible detail, and that it's going to be about how all of these three relationships don't work. And so you know that there's a train wreck coming. And so the the narrative drive is not what happens, it's how does this happen and what is going to be the impact on these people when these relationships all explode. God, it was really, really good. It was just absolutely fantastic. What a great idea for a book. Yeah, I, it was a fantastic. It's her first book uh, and it was written all during lockdown. Oh, wow, there must have good. been hours and hours of interviews done with the people to get the level of detail that's required to and paint so a story. And so what's the narrative voice? Like is it... Third person, person. yeah. So every, as I say, it's like um, it's constructed like a narrative. So you know, Claire got the bus to work, and she was thinking that. It's all from each person, obviously only their perspective, but it's their perspective in absolute minute detail. Um, Oh man, it's really it's very well executed, um, and just a fascinating sort of topic for exploration. So um, how did she, because, I mean, Lisa Tadeo went and lived with these people and kind of, you know, over 10 years. Did she do, was it like over the phone? It had to be interviews and, you know, I think as things restricted meeting people in person and whatnot, but lots of it done, um, I would assume, via Zoom and and, um, at a distance. And then it's sort of the, the, it's set up in the first chapter and the final chapter are first person in the author's voice where she's talking about her own experience of heartbreak and feeling like heartbreak is a form of grief that's fairly 
unacknowledged and that people can be walking around carrying huge pain from relationship breakups Mm. but it's not and and that it it sort of can really stick with you sometimes a horrible breakup but it's not really acknowledged in the way that say if your partner died that people would accommodate your grief whereas it is a form of you know serious form of grief nonetheless so yeah she explores those kind of questions it was um it was great. And, yeah, so the, I was reading it and it was like 10 p.m. and I was like, I just can't stop reading this. I think oh, I stayed up till so midnight good. to finish it. Yeah. But I think it's in one of Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's books. Maybe it's like The Tipping Point or something. I can't remember which one, but there is a um, passage that I always remember about, you know, why um, relationship breakdowns are so painful. It's because over a long period of time when you're with someone you kind of adapt your brain patterns and even the things that you do to complement them. Like so if one half of the relationship is good at doing X, Y and Z, then that becomes their job and then the other person, you know, doesn't do that anymore. So part of the pain of breakup is that you are literally losing half of your brain and you're, you know, you can't do, you know, programming the VCR anymore or like, you know, the thing that the other person did. And it was a really interesting kind of, neural approach to looking at heartbreak that I always found really interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting too because in this story all three of the people are the ones who were dumped. And yeah. so in, you know, one one case um, the person feels sort of blindsided, feels like it came out of nowhere. And the thing I think that can be really difficult in um, heartbreak or relationship breakups is um, – when one person wants out of it and the mm. other person's still desperately keen and doesn't yeah. want out of it. Because the person who wants out of it, often I think it's very clean kind of, yeah. um, I'm done, you yeah. know. And perhaps the person who's instigated the breakup has been pondering it over for a while. And so if you view it like a form of grief, um, the person who wants out has perhaps processed more of the grief. Yeah, and so they're sure. further along the process. Yeah. Whereas the person who doesn't want out of it um, is floundering and so I think it can be that real disconnect with you know I still really love this person and I want them in my life and how can they just seem like they're totally over it and have moved on so completely yeah um and then of course the more the hanger on a person tries to connect with the person who's done the dumping the more irritating it is yeah. to the dumper and yeah. then the more it makes them not want to be back with the other person yeah. so it, it, it becomes this sort of heartbreaking kind of self-perpetuating yeah. kind of pain wagon yeah yeah but I hadn't really thought about it I, I guess in a lot of detail and I guess also you as you're reading it of course you're reading like a lot of um books that have a universal theme in every one of those stories. Like I haven't replicated any of those people's life experiences Mm. and yet in every one of those stories there's moments of connection that you go, oh, wow, that's how everyone feels about this or, yeah, Yeah. that's familiar to me or so um, there's lots of of hooks in it that sort of keep you reading. It's it's really good. Right. Can I borrow that from you? Uh, Yes, you can, but you'll have to give it back. Can I just quickly rattle through a couple of other things before we run out of time? Yes. If people are not coveted out, which I suspect they probably are, let's face it, Michael Lewis, you know, Liars Poker, famous American writer, he's written a book called The Premonition and it's about – it's also – uh, it's not quite narrative nonfiction, but it's in that ballpark of people who were raising the alarm about the prospect of a pandemic right, in the US yeah, for years and yeah. years, and going, "Hey, we, you know, this is this could really get out of control." And so he's piecing together all the sort of missed warning signs, including that Bush, um, George W. Bush, when he was president. Um, he read a book about the 1918 flu pandemic. I never knew this. And he hmm. became particularly preoccupied because Bush had had two massive blindsides in his presidency, 9-11 yeah. and Hurricane Katrina. And then in the in sort of the second term of Bush, he became 
sort of fixated on the idea of another blindside coming out of nowhere. And mm. after he read this 1918 flu pandemic book, he thought, wow. oh, my God, that could happen. So the Bush administration actually did some amazing pandemic preparedness that they got ready for this kind of stuff and it was really good and kind of world-class and was adapted their model around the place. Oh, God. And then over the years, yeah. of course just dismantled and no attention paid to it and then when it happened it was all a bit of a disaster. So anyway, that's if you're interested in that kind of and stuff. Michael Lewis would be well positioned to write about that because he wrote that great book about the essentially the US public sector and he's, what happened when Trump arrived. He's just, the guy at taking a very complex technical thing and yeah. explaining it in layman's terms. Right. He's really great at that. And he's really lovely. I, I've interviewed him a few times and I really enjoy his company. We yapped on the Zoom for 20 minutes after the end of the interview because he's super charming and yeah. chatty and interesting and, and engaged. He's just a great asset to the human race, that guy. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, the other one that I've about halfway through is Richard Flanagan's new book, Toxic. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is about the salmon fishing industry in Tasmania. Um, it's a really good, thorough piece of journalism and it's one of those books, I mean, over the years, even on my own show, we've done stories about food um, yep. companies that have made caused me to go, I will never eat that person's brand of chicken again or I will never yep. do X, Y, Z. If you eat salmon, I think it's worth reading to understand the Tasmanian salmon industry and what's actually going on down there. I won't go into it in great detail because I'm sure that book's been legaled within an inch of its life and I don't want to be sued, but uh, I, I recommend reading it. If oh, you care okay. about the environment and you care about the kind of food that you eat and the source of it, it's a good read. All right. I will read that because um, I do eat salmon and I probably shouldn't really get my head around it. Um Hey, um, just before we go, I, at the Sydney Writers' Festival, had this funny um, circumstance where they did this lovely thing at the end of the festival called the Debutantes Ball. Yeah. And the director, Michael Williams, had this great idea, which is, you know, this last year's Sydney Writers' Festival didn't happen. And while the publishing industry sort of did okay during COVID, there's this whole generation of writers who put their first book out during COVID and so didn't get oh, to go to festivals course. or do yeah. anything like that, which is actually quite an important part of starting the ball rolling for a new writer to be, you know, seen at a festival and have yeah, festival sure. audiences go home like, oh, that was really interesting, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, so they did this thing on the last night of the festival called the Debutantes Ball where they, like, gave all these writers sashes and, like, oh, introduced how them. how cool. What a great idea. It was a really cool idea. And um, I got to meet Jessie too, which was um, oh, yeah. a really great moment because, you know, I loved her book. Um, I also got introduced. It was, it was loud and, you know, I got talking to this woman and she said, oh, my, my husband's written a book about being a dad. I'm like, oh, great. You know, she's like, here he is now. And I'm like, hello, hello, hello. And then got home and realised that I'd just met this guy called Rob Sturrock, who I've re I read online for ages. He's like a really good voice in Australia about being a dad. And I didn't realise that I'd just met him. I felt really embarrassed because <laughs> I was like, oh, I love your You stuff. wanted to fan yeah. over him a bit I wanted more. to fan over him instead of him. I'm like, oh, lovely to meet you. Right, well, best go. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, when I got home, I found his email and I sent him this sort of email saying, oh, my God, I didn't realise. Anyway, um, so I've started reading his book too and it's, uh, it's so good. I don't know. Like I feel sometimes that a lot of this um, work or discussion about gender and parenting and stuff is lots of women writing about it and – um, there's not really an oversupply of really powerful, interesting male voices in this field and um, old Rob Sturrock is definitely one of them and the book is, like, fabulously well written. It's about his experience, you know. Um, it's called Man Raises Boy, by the way, and so it's um, he writes it in, the, in advance of the birth of his son, which then turns into a highly complicated kind of and quite traumatic, you know, coming into the world. So it's um, full of action but also 
great reflection mm. about um, what it means to be a dad and what it means to be a dad of a boy. Oh, that sounds really interesting. It is. It's great. Recommend. Um I might. Uh, yeah, you got to go. I can see your your <laughs> eyes are kind of swiveling. <laughs> yeah, we're at the top of the hour. <laughs> well, thanks, viewers. Thanks for your time. <laughs> There's a bit in the forthcoming Chat Ten book that made me laugh so hard when I read it, which is you talking about all my little conversational things that I give when I've had basically enough. Like, well, you know, I guess, I guess we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll never really know. Um, <laughs> right then. <laughs> yeah. Well, that okay. That sounds great. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> the high energy dismount that I've come to rely on you it's for. It's also I, I I don't do it on purpose, but I've also noticed what I do is I, I stop being expansive. Yes, and you so do. I, I start yep. just giving really closed kind yep. of sentences. I like, know. Oh, great. That sounds good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Piss off then. All right. See ya.